0: Thank you so much for joining the Gen Church Wabh podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022, or should I say, we're almost halfway through 2022. And we have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you to connect around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these events, gatherings, and opportunities, Head on over to mygenerations.church to learn more. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together.
1: I'm going to continue into our series of masterclass. So Kyle's going to go through First Corinthians. I'm going to read a verse this morning. It's out of chapter 15. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, if you've got your Bible in your hand. Also, if you need a Bible, we have some on the tables on either side of the room where we have the communion there as well, but there's Bible source if you need to grab one, grab one today, you can do that. But I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 41 through 49. And it says, the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. The star differs from the star in splendor, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man.
0: Well, welcome back to Master Class. You know, I was told growing up, and maybe you've heard this saying, that there are no dumb questions. And most of us would probably agree until we're asked one of those questions and go, okay, that was a little bit (laughs) dumb. For the most part, again, you're right. There are no dumb questions. But the ability to ask and then answer questions, which then result in change or action, are good questions. I think sometimes we ask questions, and when we receive the answer, We don't really have any intention with doing anything with it. We ask questions and maybe receive some answers, and then we go, oh, that's good information, but it doesn't necessarily change the way we live. That might not be such a good question, one that when we finally receive the answer, receive some level of truth, that the result does not generate change. Here at Generations, we welcome questions about faith, the Bible. There are no dumb questions. We don't want to assume that you have been in church or been around church, or even if you have, maybe you've been told some level of information and that that information has automatically generated in you knowing that truth or that information I think sometimes just stepping through the doors of a gathering where you should automatically uh, have received or be downloaded with all biblical data and treat others in our community as such. So we welcome questions about faith. No question, no topic is really off limits. We want you to seek truth, we want you to find. Answers. And we also know that as we ask questions, that as we wrestle with difficult things about faith, the Bible, what it looks like to live life together, that sometimes the answers we receive are difficult to hear and stomach, and sometimes we know that we may never get the quite the answer that we And maybe even the answer that we receive, we don't receive until eternity. My hope is that we continue to ask questions and seek truth, that we seek to the Scriptures and live by the Spirit together. Heck, we even sing a song that says when we are searching for answers, we know that only Jesus can provide And as we've been in this series, we've been asking and answering the driving question that Paul has to reframe for the Corinthian believers. What does it mean to be spiritual? You've probably been told what it means to be spiritual. You've probably listened uh, to others give you advice about what it means to be spiritual. You've probably scrolled on social media and got segments or clips or graphics that says, this is what it means to be spiritual the challenge is is to not just take their word for it but to take god's word for it and then put god's word into practice so as to truly experience and understand what it really means to be spiritual because we all know it's really easy to say one thing to listen to words it's a lot harder To put that into practice and then even to learn and to have our own thinkings and mind challenged. Our own truth, our own perspective challenged when it doesn't quite manifest itself the way we think it should. To blend information and truth and experience with the result of when we seek Jesus in the midst of all of that. To seek his will, and his way to filter all of life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we aren't just settling for information, but that we are able to experience transformation, true change, and see others change as well. Paul's emotion and rhetoric in this letter has been straightforward. It's been robust. And in today's case, he's almost seemingly frustrated. There's no dumb questions unless you already know the answer to the question and you're asking simply for just trying to stir the pot, maybe. Paul is making a robust argument for the necessity of the resurrection not so much the resurrection of Jesus. The Corinthian church, they already believed in this. When he's writing this letter to him, they're not doubting the resurrection of Jesus. What they are doubting and what they are confused and what they are concerned about is, what, if any, does it matter if we're resurrected as believers? They were having trouble believing in their own resurrection. And when we doubt, the validity of our own resurrection when we are followers of Jesus and we do not see how it transforms or changes how we live everyday life, we will settle for thinking, we will settle for lives that are less than human. So his point is that failure to believe our own resurrection stands in contrast to the resurrection of Jesus. And again, without the resurrection of Jesus, everything is then up for grabs. Christ's death as a saving event, forgiveness of sins, hope for the future, Christian ethics, the integrity of the one and only God. If there is no resurrection, this could all be in doubt. But ever since the beginning, as we will see in this chapter, there are pervasive voices in our world that want us to settle for being lesser than human, to dis card or disregard aspects of ourself. It's why the discussion on mental health is so important. It's why highlighting partners who promote physical wellness in a dignified way is important because we have different aspects of ourselves, our mental, emotional, relational, physical health. And so when Paul is speaking to the reality of the resurrection, He is accounting for the sum total of human beings, not the fragmented ones that we sometimes want to reduce ourselves to. And the Corinthians were struggling to believe the body was valuable at all. See, in their view, by the reception of the Spirit, and especially the gift of tongues as we saw in 1 Corinthians 14, they had already entered the true spirituality that is to be already have begun a form of eternal existence in which the body was unnecessary and unwanted and would finally be discarded altogether. See, thus for them, life in the spirit meant the final ridding oneself of the body, not because it was evil, but because it was inferior and beneath them. The idea was that the body would be raised would have been an anathema. It would have been frustrating. And how could we believe this to be true? Because the body was inferior to the spirit. And the result of this was what you did with your body really didn't matter. This led to them and influenced their thinking back on when they ingested. How they viewed sex. How they viewed work. How they viewed conflict with others. It all ties back to, ah. it doesn't really matter what we do when we see the body as not valuable at all. As something simply to be discarded and molded and shaped to our own whims. And Paul's frustration was having to answer this question and not seeing how the answer affects their lives and how that came out. So starting in verse 35, he asks rhetorically, someone will say, how then the dead are raised, what kind of body will they have when they come? And immediately after that, he says, oh, foolish one. Really, it's probably a harsher tone than that. I'm in a good mood, so I a little softer today, a little, a little more pleasant, but it would have been very blunt and direct. That's a dumb question. It matters that the body is raised. And then Paul then begins to describe a series of analogies as why to this is important. Paul prepares the way for the idea of spiritual or heavenly glorified body in two sets, seeds and then kinds of bodies. The analogies are intended to take them from the known to the unknown. That of the seeds in verses 36 through 38. Let me just read that. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives us a body as he wants and to each of the seeds of its own body. It illustrates both the genuine continuity of the future body and what the present one and the reality of its transformation in which a body for each mode of existence is given by God. See, when you plant a wheat seed, a big wheat seed does not come up. Instead, a stalk of wheat grows that then results in more wheat seeds. So even though our resurrection bodies come from our present bodies, we should not expect that they will be the same bodies or just improved bodies. It's not the same exact type or kind. So when we think about the eternal body, the resurrected body, when we are raised from the dead, when Jesus comes back, that it's not just, oh, my hip won't hurt as much anymore. Or I when I sleep wrong and I roll out of bed that my back won't hurt as much. Or I won't get acid reflux when I, when I eat that. Or, or I won't struggle to, to maintain focus when I'm trying to read. It's not just that the aches and the pains and the reality of when we experience all kinds of things that we're like, will just be remedied and it'll go away. But there will be something about our body that's totally good. That's totally whole. But Paul is not quite ready to make that application. He's got to dabble in one more analogy. So that'll come a little bit later in this passage. For now, he keeps the analogy that of seeds. And Paul gives the mention of God's giving to the naked seed a resurrected body as God pleases As God pleases, he reminds Paul of the great variety of the bodies thus are in the plant world. So thus, in each to the kind of seed God gives its own body, meaning that each of the kinds of grain is different, not only for the naked seed, but from the others as well. Paul elaborates on this with that second illustration. Living bodies and heavenly bodies. Paul expands on this. And he he reads or he writes and I'll just read it. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another for animals, and another for birds and for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of heavenly bodies is different from that of earthly ones. There's a splendor of the sun and another of the moon and so another of the stars, for one star differs from another star. In splendor. The bodies that differ, the coming resurrection bodies, they have a different type of glory. See, Paul wants us to understand that as we think about our lives and what we do with our body, that what is coming in eternity is not just to be done away with, with it should affect how we live our lives now. And so he describes that there's going to be different type of bodies or structures, and he uses the sun, the moons, the stars, different aspects of the universe, each created with its own glory and each suited to its own particular environment and needs. And while our present bodies are adapted for the environment of time and earth, our resurrection bodies will be adapted For the environment of eternity in heaven on the new heavens and the new earth. And the two analogies, the seed and the types of bodies, are then applied to the resurrection of the dead. Let me pause here once again. Sometimes when we think about eternity or heaven or what goes on, We've been influenced to think that we'll just fly away in the sky and disappear from the world. That is not the vision of the Christian eternity. You were made with a body. You are loved by God precisely as you are the sum total of who you are. All your quirks, you know, the, the nagging things that you, you wish you could correct or change, you know, maybe your ears are a little too long or your nose feels a little too big or your teeth are a little too crooked and so we throw on some braces to try to correct all those types of things. But the reality is, is that, as Rose was prepared to read, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so our bodies are not things to just be shaped and molded and self-expressed from our own desires, but to recognize that who we are, even and how we're composed, was thoughtfully and intentionally composed. And so they should not just be simply discarded. And so when we recognize that, when we think about eternity our body will be resurrected, a real physical body. We're not going to be some spiritual beings that hover around everywhere we go or or have wings and have little halos and be in white robes with harps or reduced to little chubby babies on wings that float on clouds. No, like who you are, the essence. Will be expressed in physical form when your soul and spirit is reunited with your body in the resurrection. And we will get to walk this earth, the new earth, with God, with others, for those of us who believe in Jesus. And our body will be adapted to enjoy and experience this reality. And the key word for the new body is that it will be imperishable. It will not decay. And for some of us, that's really hard to comprehend. Because we know that we can buy a brand new car and within two minutes a tire goes flat, a light might come on, or it already needs serviced. Our body won't need serviced in that way. It'll be new in total. But that reality should affect how we view and prepare our bodies today. And sometimes it's hard to understand what the resurrection bodies will be like. So, Paul gives us a contrast to help us. And he gives those four contrasts that I was even just describing. And on all counts, the resurrection body wins, the incorruption triumphs over the corruption. I talk often about voices in your head that that want you to say and do things that are contrary to, to the will of God, the, the urges that you go, I know I probably shouldn't do that, but you feel yourself drawn in that way. You won't have to face that. That glory triumphs over dishonor, power triumphs over weakness, that spiritual triumphs over the natural that the resurrection body is so total and complete and whole that you don't have to fight against yourself. You ever find yourself in those moments where it's that mental game, that mental back and forth? Even maybe Mother's Day with your spouse. Maybe maybe someone... Some of you who, who's got a wife who, who's a mom and, and you're like, okay, so what does she really want? She says she doesn't want anything for Mother's Day. And then you constantly go back and forth in your mind and you're trying to go around those things. And you're like, I, I feel like I should do something, but I'm not sure. And, and there's all these voices and maybe that's a poor example, but, but there's things that where you're tugged in different ways internally, mentally. And what you're able to do with a resurrection body, is all of that is in continuity with your body and you're able to head essentially in the same direction. There's no competition inwardly. There's no frustration when you work out and you don't get a little bit skinnier or stronger. Everything is in alignment. And it's not so much that we bring that into reality. What Paul's saying is, God sees the precise body that he has made and created for you, and you will receive that totally and completely in eternity. But the start of that is to help us realize that and embrace that who we are is a gift from God. And that shows up in how we even view the physical world and our physical self. And so while the Corinthians were settling for a false definition of the spiritual person, we settle for one as well. See, we don't necessarily view the body completely as an anathema and something to completely be discarded, but as I've already alluded to, we have these tendencies to view ourselves as the psychological self. See, the psychological self is a desired self-actualization self in which a person can, or at least thinks they can, make and remake personal identity at will. I don't like who I am today, so I'm just going to throw on a quick couple changes, modifications, adjust, and go on. And we think we are good. We might even dye our hair. We might work out a little bit more. We might self-talk ourselves into thinking that we didn't just make the decision that we make because we're trying to feel better about the decision that we just made. And we think if we can just psychologize, convince ourselves that we're a good person, or we're not that bad, or that the action that we make doesn't trace back to us settling or believing something less about ourselves. I actually did this exercise this morning with someone while we were standing in the kitchen. I I did it with someone on on Monday night. Is There's a cycle that we perpetuate when we fail to see that we are loved by God. What happens is that we fear maybe abandonment. Or we fear that, that we lack approval from others. Or that we feel like if we can just manipulate the circumstances and situations, if we could just do this or be like this, then someone will love me or someone won't leave me. Or someone um, will, will finally give me the, maybe the applause that I feel like I've earned or am due. And the cycle perpetuates. And then we feel guilty of we didn't do what we thought we were want to do or we made the mistake again and we try to do positive self talk and it never quite works out because we're all trying to convince ourselves that we are worthy of love that we're worthy of belonging that we're not a mistake that how we look isn't less than someone or something else. And if we just settle for positive psychologizing, trying to convince ourselves that we're different than we are, we fail to recognize that we already have something, that we already are something. And that is a love child of God that then allows us to live loved and thus love ourselves and then actually love others and tell others that their story matters and that they belong. And the reason and the way that this, the body image conversation comes back into it is that consumerism or, or late capitalism fuels this notion that the customer is king and the goods we consume as being basic to who we are. And so we take this view of the body and how we view our physical appearance and the images of others. Commercials communicate this message in the way they present particular products or particular images of people as keys to happiness or life improvement. That you have the power to transform yourself by the mere swipe of a credit card. The possession of this thing, that car, that kitchen, that item of clothing will make you a different, a better, a more fulfilled person. That if you just work out more, that if you just buy the right flowers, that if you just get the right present, then you'll be good. Underwritten by an easy credit card. Consumerist self-creation is the order of the day because we feel like if we can just change the physical nature to reach the reality of what we see in our mind, then all will be good. My question is, how's that going for you? Chances are enough drinking, enough sex, enough stuff, enough trips, Don't fill the bottomless pit that you feel. Enough working out. Enough information is not producing the type of joy and transformation that you actually desire. Information is not bad. But just receiving information, experience those types of things, don't result in transformation. Because there's always specific individual limitations to our ability to invent ourselves. There are limits, physiologically, intellectual capacity, income, location and time, and geographical location all play into this. And if we never check ourselves, this self-expression as the ultimate is an invisible disease that pollutes all relationships. Because no one can ever tell you no. And adults rage when their kids don't respond to no. But we are too sometimes kids in a little larger and older bodies. No one can tell us no. No one can tell us to stop or think. And Paul's point is that the resurrected body is true. And you don't get to choose. Receive instead. Receive who God has. Who has made you. How he's created you become who you in fact are a loved child of God and in receiving that then you can actually begin to enjoy the physical things of this world. then you'll stop fighting your body you'll stop you'll stop loathing it. you'll stop feeling shame or guilt that I ate that extra burger instead of dieting. You'll start to be able to to to, to, re, to embrace, who you are, not as an excuse to do whatever you want, but to see yourselves precisely as God sees you. And who we see ourselves to be may or may not match what we see ourselves. Sometimes former athletes struggle to coach and mentor because they see themselves as still being able to get out there while physically they cannot. And we call this notion delusional. So how do you view yourself as an essence to express, clay to be shaped, to something to be idolized, to something to lament or mourn? And we don't always see ourselves rightly, but God does. And that's the challenge in our everyday life, is to put spirit over self where we put God's purposes and priorities ahead of our own as we daily depend on Him where we live, work, and play. See, because when you listen to the voices of others, you will think that you constantly have to change for their approval or to be success or to receive that pat on the back or to be good enough when He says you already are. And our values that I just cited, that spirit over self that are even over here on the wall are more than cute sayings. They're there to provide your filter for your choices. And so becoming like Jesus is something that God gives to us. And when we put spirit over self, we learn to become more like Jesus and see ourselves how he sees us. It's not an achievement that we offer to him. It's enjoying a new identity he has given to us in Christ. And it begins with his work for us. He has set us free from the sin and offers us a relationship with himself. It's as if there's two feasts. The feast of God and the feast of sin, and we're invited to both. And God invites us to find out to find satisfaction in him. Sin entices us with its lies to look for the satisfaction and our self-actualization and our selfishness that we can co-create our life the exact way that we want it. And so we're double booked. And all the time we have to choose which feast to attend. Sin promises so much, but it doesn't deliver and charges a high price. Broken lives, broken relationships, broken hopes, And ultimately, the wages of sin is death. But God offers us a feast that satisfies. He offers us delight for our souls. The motivation for change in holiness is that God's feast is so much better. And the price tag reads, no cost. There is no charge. It's His gift to us. So which feast In your daily life, will you attend? And as Paul winds down the analogies and he merges them together, he further illustrates the two themes of body sown one way but raised another and the transformed body adapted to its new conditions. See, the hope is of a resurrected whole body, but we're not there yet. And with that hope, with that reality found only in Jesus, to allow that to shape our everyday life. And so Paul picks up on this Adam-Christ analogy. And just as believers have shared the earthly body for the first man, so also will they bear the heavenly body of the second man. And this, of course, is the key to everything. The ultimate reason for Paul's faith lies with the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he was thus raised in incorruption, glory, and power. And the continuity existed because of the one who had been crucified was also seen visibly and corporeally. After his resurrection, but Christ's currently heavenly existence also meant for Paul that there was obvious transformation So with ourselves, he argues, we do and shall bear the likeness of both Adam and Christ. Every day, help your character and priorities to become more like Jesus, to become less like Adam, to give us where he saw, he and Eve, they they look and they saw the fruit and they took and eat for themselves, whereas Jesus took and saw that his father's way and will was good. And this was raised to life. From this first Adam we are all made of dust, and from the last Adam we can be made heavenly. For believers the promise is sure, we shall also bear the image of a heavenly man. And since we will bear the image of the heavenly man, the best example we have of what that resurrection body will be like is when we see what Jesus' resurrection body was like. The resurrection body of Jesus was material and could eat, yet was not bound by the laws of nature. In our present earthly existence, the body is simply neither to be admired nor degenerated. And so Paul says once again, Become what you are. A person to be loved. And we begin realizing that by sowing the seeds of eternity into today, we can change. We can adapt. We can grow. Our character can grow. Our priorities, how we spend our time, can adjust to become more in line with Jesus. And I think oftentimes because of the swipe of the credit card, because of our self-actualization, that we so desperately want our outer world to change with no change to our inner world. See, our inner world has to change. We have to truly believe that we are loved children of God, to know that the Holy Spirit resides in our bodies, in our hearts, with us. And can give us the capacity to choose to enter and eat from the heavenly feast. But we don't always do this well. So we need moments and experiences to help order our internal world. To remind us of that eternal reality. The band's going to start to make their way back up as we prepare to respond. And let me just suggest one way that has been used throughout Christian history to remind ourselves of the already not yet. The reality of the hopeful and anticipated future body, but the reality that we are still physical and we are time-bound. That Christian practice is that of fasting, where we're reminded that our needs are temporary, where we experience some hunger Maybe you withdraw from social media or you pause eating. And we're remembered in the moments of those cravings that God is eternal. That in those moments of wanting and longing, of abstinence, of of choosing to to discipline ourselves. To order our inner world in such a way to resolve ourselves to say, I'm going to do without for a moment. To be reminded that for eternity I will never have to go without. To know for a moment I hunger. To know for a moment I may even thirst. To know for a moment that I might experience temporary pain. But there will be a day when that's eliminated. When that's dealt with. That I won't have to be restricted in that such a way. That the body is not a tool to be used. Just simply an object to be enjoyed or a shame to change or an idol to worship. But at the end of the day, my body... The resurrection hope of my body because of the resurrection of Christ allows me to live loved, to be loved and love others and know that Christ gave up his body for me. He sacrificed his life for me. And true spirituality... Being a truly spiritual person is reframing life not through the vision that I have for myself, but through the vision that Christ has for my life. One of love, one of hope, one of eternity with God, with others. So we're going to go ahead and stand and respond and sing. And so maybe this week try some level of fasting. Try some level or way to order yourself so that you can be reminded of the eternal hope that we have. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Gen Churchwa podcast. I hope today's teaching encouraged you and maybe even challenged you to respond to the scripture and the spirit so that you can live your faith every day. Thanks for checking us out. Have a great week.